Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Morning, everybody. Got a little issue with the PowerPoint slides, but um, never mind, we'll press on as long as we've got the pictures. So if uh, not everything's on the screen or it looks a bit dodgy, it was all right yesterday. (laughs) Thank you, Judy. Fantastic. Sorry, it was a bit of a long reading, but uh, I needed all of that to be heard. I don't know about you, I've been really enjoying uh, this series through Mark and, and I'm really focusing on what Jesus is like, we, we so often put um, our own spin on him, don't we? And we just, we just need to keep returning, keep returning to what he actually did, what he actually said, and who he actually is. And I'm hoping to uh, bring a bit of that uh, this morning as well. So what's happening in, in chapter 9? Well, an absolutely awful lot. There's the transfiguration, there's the healing of the boy. Later on, Jesus is predicting his death for the second time. But the disciples still haven't got it. Who's greatest in the kingdom, they're arguing. Using the name of Jesus and believing in him. Um, So if this sermon was to carry on for three hours, I probably still wouldn't do it justice. So I'm going to focus on uh, two main scenes. The two scenes that Judy so brilliantly read there. Now, and I've entitled the series, uh, this sermon (laughs) series, uh, Mountain and Valley. Now, There's two valley pictures there. We have got a mountain somewhere later on. Now, Mount Tabor is traditionally the place where the transfiguration took place. And uh, and, Andrew has been there this week. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Now, from those two scenes, you need to keep your Bibles open for this as well. Why don't you, I'm going to get you to do some work now, just like in the classroom. Turn to your partner, or turn into your learning partner, as we would say. Twos and threes. What's the same, and what's different about those two scenes? And you might want to think about uh, the landscape, and you might want to think about the people. Just a couple of minutes. Turn to your partners. What do you notice? What do you notice? Brilliant. Thank you. I could put you on the spot and ask for um, responses, but I'll, um, I'll go easy on you this morning. I think you ec- have extra brownie points for the weather on a bank holiday, so well done for coming. <laughs> so I'm going to look at people and scenery. In both scenes, Jesus and the three disciples are there. That's what's the same. But on the mountain, there's also Elijah, Moses, And Father God, in the valley, there's the rest of the disciples, the teachers of the law, a large crowd with the Father being part of that. So let's have a look at the scenery and the landscape. Well, they're on a high mountain. And in verse 2, it talks about, and Jesus led them up a mountain where they were all alone. So when we're all alone, there's that sense of being above everything on this mountain. No distractions, a quiet space, alone with Jesus. Back in the valley, it's crowded, 
It's noisy. There's conflicting arguments. There's confrontation. There's confusion. You might say it's claustrophobic. There's uncertainty. There's failure on the part of the disciples. Pain and suffering, at least from the Father and maybe some others there. There's religion, the religious uh, establishment. And we can see that when they came down to the other disciples in verse 14, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. We might describe this part as being back in the real world after being on our mountaintop with Jesus alone. So let's delve into these a little bit deeper. What do these two passages tell us about Jesus, his disciples, the crowd, and our lives? The transfiguration on the mountain and the healing of the boy in the valley, both on the same day. So let's focus on the different characters and explore these two scenes. But first, let us recognize the scenes and how they relate to our own lives. On the mountain. Where might this be in our walk with God? Does it have to be a physical mountain? I know we're in Suffolk, there's not many mountains. No, but sometimes the physical place does help. Uh, When we were in Kyrgyzstan, we went to a village in the mountains. There was actually a Christian lady there who did walk up the mountain every day to be with God. And they were the only Christians in that village. So it helped her. Is it a good idea to be alone or with one or two other disciples? That could be your family as well that you trust. Yes. And what goes on on this mountain? Well, there's prayer, which is just talking to Jesus and Father God with the Spirit's guidance. There's prophecy, which simply means listening to what God is saying to you. On the mountain, we can learn something new or we're reminded of a truth about Jesus or Father God. And when might this happen? These could be our regular quiet times. They could be worshipping worshiping the Father with or without music. They could be reading the Bible, writing your journal, a walk in nature even. The list is endless. But we do need to find our mountain because we need it because there's the valley. Now, Back to reality, we might say. Monday mornings, sometimes it could be Sunday afternoon. Friday nights, I probably don't need to explain the everyday lives to to us. This is where we are when we come down the mountain. Our homes, our families, our workplaces, the clubs we belong to, the recreation uh, pastimes we take part in. And what might be here? Well, there's conversation, there's agreements and disagreements, there's frustrations, there's fun, there's enjoyment, there's opportunities and problems. The whole of life's rich tapestry, we might say. An example of being on the mountain and in the valley uh, on the same day happened to me about a week and a half ago. It's been quite stressful at work at the moment. Um, not having any time for anything, really. And this and a combination of other other things led me to being extremely grumpy one night. And even the next morning. (laughs) Now, it's unusual the next morning. Normally, I'm okay in the morning, but it was still grumpy. And the poor family take the brunt of it. And I opened my uh, Bible while I was eating my cornflakes. And the Bible reading for that day was Philippians 4. 
I hasten to add, I was going through the Bible in a year, and I'm in December from last year. I know it's May. So, you know. <laughs> but I'm, can- I'm continuing. And Philippians 4, is, as you know it, is rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, I, was a, I, I, I laughed to myself on that point, because when you've walked with God for a little while, you do realize he does have a sense of humor. And when that reading came up that morning, I, I thought, it's got to be you. I, uh, there was no defense there. I just kind of, okay, I'd love to see you get out, <laughs> sort this one out, Father. I'm having to walk to school. I've been having to walk to school for the last couple of weeks because I had a punch and I haven't had time to fix it. But again, God, God's bring good out of this. It takes about 10 minutes longer, a 20-minute walk. And um, I've been really enjoying those walks. So using just my will alone, I wasn't feeling in a particularly holy place. I started thanking God for what, he, what he's given us. I started to worship his name as I was walking along under my breath. Started singing the songs. So the mountain. I'd gone up to the mountain. And amazingly, after a few minutes, that act of will kind of turned into a natural thanking and praising. And literally within 15 minutes of the walk, I'd emerged the new, the new man again. And the word that God had spoken to me on that morning, a little nugget in that, Philippians 4, that I'd never spotted before. That's great about the word of God, isn't it? That he just, he just said, it brings something up. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. And at that point, I was as far as gentleness as I thought I could be. But that came back to me. And something else came up at that same point. And it was um, a colleague of mine had said the previous day, you're not, your, you're not your usual self. Where's, where's, where's the smiley mat we're all used to? And I thought, goodness, you know what? When we sometimes think we're in our workplaces, we're in our homes, how can anyone, you know, are we doing, are we bringing God to anyone? Are we shining the light of Jesus? Are we being um, Christian people in a, in, in, in a workplace? And it's only when somebody realizes you've changed that you think, oh, maybe I am. And it's just God in you. It's God in you. You can't, you can't take credit for it. But that was, that, was, that was a wonderful moment of mountain and, and, and valley all in, all in the same, same day. Now, the good news is that Jesus is in both. Hopefully when you are looking at what's the same and what's different, Jesus came up as being in both places. He might have said different things, but he's the same person. And we need to keep hold of that. Let's have a look at the characters now. On the mountain. Jesus only takes three of his disciples up the mountain to witness his transfiguration. What about the others? Why only these three? And we see this from Jesus several times. It's not just a one-off. I mean, one example might be raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. He only invited a couple of the disciples into the house. From the 72 disciples, he's picked 12 who are closer to him. From the 12, he's picked three who he invests more time in. We've heard this before. And to us, this might seem 
rude or exclusive. Not very Christian, we might say. <laughs> but let's think about our own relationships a little bit, a little bit deeper. I'm mean, not reflected on this a little bit when I was writing this. We do naturally spend more time with a few people than with all our friends whom we connect with less often or less deeply. If we do try and see everybody all the time, we can quickly become exhausted or just have lots of surface conversations, never going any deeper really. And, and I think this um, is regardless of our personality type. You can, you can be an extrovert and out there being that kind of person, but you could still become re- exhausted. You can um, enjoy conversations with lots of different people, but never go any deeper than that. We may never know why he chose Peter, James and John. Maybe they were more keen. Maybe they'd asked him deeper questions. Maybe Jesus had seen more potential in them. I mean, they certainly went on to become the fathers of the early church. And read Acts if you want to find out how many times these three are actually mentioned. In our own lives, dare we say even church, this exclusivity can hurt or be painful. Why didn't they invite me? Am I not important enough? We've all asked ourselves this at some time in our lives. And the disciples weren't immune either. In verses 33 and 34, which are just past where we read this morning, it says, when he was in the house, this is Jesus, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. So what's the cure to this? You won't be surprised to know that it's knowing your true identity as a beloved child of the Father and really plugging into a group of disciples who are on the same life pilgrimage as you are. But both of these take time. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And we will still have moments of doubt and insecurity and even being hurt along the journey. But the good news is, that we've all been invited in some context as part of that three, invited up the mountain. We all have exclusive access to Jesus. So on the mountain, Peter, James and John discover a fresh revelation of Jesus. His divinity, his power, the Son of God. And in verse 3, to emphasize it, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now these guys, you couldn't have it plainer than that. They've had the, t- the, the great prophets of the Old Testament. They've seen him there with Jesus. They've been enveloped in a cloud. I quite love that word that Judy read there. And Father God has actually heard him. A great revelation. And I love how this part ends, which can reflect our own times on the mountain. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And it might seem like a bit of a Christian cliche, but times on the mountain can make everything else fade into insignificance compared to Jesus. I know it isn't quite the same context here, but I think it still works. Meanwhile... Back in the valley. Just to remind you, that opening phrase there. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Who are here? Well, Jesus, 
Peter, James and John, the rest of the disciples, the teachers of the law, law, the crowd with the Father in there. Let's take these groups one at a time. So Peter, James and John. Frustratingly, we don't know about these three in this scene, but we do know they are there. Because in verse 14 it says, when they came to the other disciples. So it must mean Jesus and the others. What about the other nine disciples? Well, these guys are right in the thick of it. They're surrounded. They're arguing with the teachers of the law, with the crowd looking on. However, we might think, oh, poor disciples. But they're having a go at what Jesus taught them and had given them authority to do. But they've not succeeded on this occasion. They had previously in Mark 6, when Jesus had given them authority to drive out demons and to, uh, uh, and to heal the sick. Read it and remind yourself if you can't remember. And they said, uh, uh, before they could even answer, the father says, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. In this apprenticeship model that we've heard Simon talk about sometimes, Jesus uses, the disciples have watched him perform miracles and cast out demons. That might be described as, I do, and you watch as an apprentice. They've had a go with Jesus helping them. Feeding the 5,000. You do, and I help. Now they're in a season of having a go while Jesus watches, albeit from a distance. Probably because the crowd always want Jesus, not his disciples. You do, and I watch. Now each of these stages of coaching or apprenticeship is a challenge for the disciples and for us as disciples of Jesus. And in all of this, Jesus is teaching them along the way. Verses 28 and 29. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. And in some versions it says, by prayer and fasting. But they're having a go. And they are still willing to learn and keep practicing. There's real resilience there. What about the teachers of the law? We've learned a lot about these in the early chapters. The religious establishment, the experts, they're still continuing to think their way is the best. But there's no relationship with Jesus. They're following their rules. And previous sermons can expand on this. But they're still in this same position. They're still not getting it. They've got the Son of God there, but they're still focusing on the rules, ten of which were given by God, and the rest they added to. The crowd. They still want Jesus up to a point. They've seen and they know the power. They love the show, the healings, but they don't want to commit to following Jesus any more closely than this. And even... Later on, I just picked up on this when Judy was reading. I'll come back to that when I get in now. I'll come back to that. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, verse 15, it says, they were overwhelmed with wonder. So they knew who he is and run, ran to greet him. But there's only one person from that crowd who steps forward to make himself vulnerable, the father of the boy. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, 
Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. This man is desperate. When I was reflecting on this, I felt it linked very uh, closely with the woman uh, with the bleeding for 12 years who touches Jesus' cloak. It's a very similar picture, I think. His son is seriously ill for many years and he doesn't know what else to do. Verse 22, it says, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Remember, he's also a Jew. He's been brought up with God's law. He knows everything the teachers of the law have taught him. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Jesus, what's he doing? Well, upon coming down the mountain, he comes across this scene. And he asks his disciples, what are you arguing with them about? And I think you can almost hear the emphasis on the them. What are you arguing with them about? With that point being towards the teachers of the law. As if to say you won't get any answers there. They don't even get a chance to answer before the father interrupts. Jesus once again is somewhat exasperated by everybody's lack of belief. And if you know your Old Testament, there's echoes of the Old Testament with God's frustrations at times with the Jewish people. Very often he's saying, how long must I put up with you (laughs) hard-nosed people? Stiff-necked, he tells us. The boy is brought to Jesus, at which point the spirit, knowing who Jesus is, throws the boy into a fit. We often see this. The spirit's often recognize Jesus as the son of God straight away. Jesus doesn't immediately heal the boy and ask the father for some background. The father answers, but then with desperation he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You notice the us there. The boy's illness affects the whole family, not just with worry, but also probably with shame in their local community. It's an honor shame kind of uh, culture. And Jesus picks up on the man's, if you can. Remember, back in chapter 1, Jesus picks up on, if you are willing. We learnt there that God is willing. And here we learn that God can. Everything is possible for one who believes. And the father immediately repents for his lack of belief. Again, remember, this is... A, a, a Jewish man brought up in God's law. He knows it. He knows the Jewish traditions, the traditions of the Torah, the Passover. Yet he still says, he recognizes Jesus for who he is. And he asks Jesus to help him for his unbelief. He's got all the traditions in his head. He's done all the uh, actions. He's learned his Torah. But... There's a difference. He's met the actual Son of God. And he's realized in this action he hasn't believed. And once again we see Jesus take pity. And this time he does it quickly. Because in verse 25 it says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. He didn't want to give the show to the crowd at that point. But he did later on teach the disciples about this kind of spirit. Sometimes he taught the crowd, sometimes he knew that they were just there for the show and to see what's going on. So 
Let's reflect on these people and think about maybe where the Spirit of God might be asking you to pause in this story. But before that, just a few extra thoughts. As I mentioned earlier, the fact that for Jesus, that mountain and that claustrophobic scene at the valley all happened in the same day, within a matter of hours. And life is more like that. Not just one or the other, but both. And you might be, it has been described as two parallel tracks, like railway tracks, which are running side by side. But when you look into the distance, they come together because of the way our eyes work. So these two tracks, the mountain and the valley, can get caught up and be in and out of our day. Sometimes you may even have the peace of God that I experienced that day, but you're in the valley. That's the ultimate, isn't it? So what I'd like us to do is have a little talk to those people around you about where your spirit's focusing you today. Are you the three, Peter, James and John, receiving a fresh revelation or a reminder of who Jesus is? And maybe he's prompting you to see him in action in the valley. I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I'm imagining those three that went up the mountain, they're still reeling from what they've seen, and yet they've seen him straight back in there in the valley again. Are you that? Are you still overawed with God? Are you the other nine disciples having a go, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, but still following Jesus and determined to learn from him? Can you relate to the Father? Desperate for Jesus' mercy, for something that you've been asking for 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 years and struggling with. He is willing and he is able. Call on him for help. Help our unbelief. Are you in the crowd or a teacher of the law struggling to commit a part of your life to Jesus? Or that knowledge getting in the way of that relationship with Jesus? Why don't you have a little moment to... Reflect to yourselves or talk to those near you and then we'll move into a time of praying for each other or gently praying for yourself, asking for the Spirit of God. Father God, just bring your Spirit to